I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, exits and entrances. A lawyer in Ramallah celebrates Israel's latest release of Palestinian detainees, but says many more people, including minors, have been unjustly arrested since October 7th. First, do no harm. Texas's Supreme Court is hearing from women who say their health was threatened by the state's abortion ban. One plaintiff tells us being in court today brought her trauma to the surface. Paid in full. Before a 38-year-old woman died of ovarian cancer, she launched a campaign that may end up wiping out tens of millions of dollars in strangers' medical debt. This is for all the marbles. Greece's Prime Minister calls on the British Museum to return the Elgin Marbles, a request that Britain's Prime Minister apparently finds stone cold. So far out, so good. Christian Jacobs remembers watching the Croft Brothers' psychedelic TV shows as a kid in the 70s, and later he became their colleague and friend. Tonight, he remembers the late Marty Croft. And there's a lot left in the tank. He might live to 150, but that hasn't stopped lots of people from wanting to take care of Frank the Tank, a tortoise discovered in a B.C. spinach field last month. And he may be slow, but the guy who fostered him says they were fast friends. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that appreciates a celebrity endorsement. Hamas has released another 12 hostages tonight, and the Israel Prison Service has released another 30 detained Palestinians. It's the latest exchange as part of temporary ceasefire negotiations that have brought dozens of Israeli hostages home and seen more than 150 Palestinians freed from Israeli custody. Thus far, the terms have essentially been, for every 10 Israelis freed, 30 Palestinians are released, and the ceasefire is extended by another 24 hours. That calculus has enormous implications for the individuals and families involved, and Talan Nasser knows many of them. She's a staff lawyer with the Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, which advocates on behalf of Palestinians in Israeli detention. We reached her before today's exchange in Ramallah. Tala, what can you tell us about the Palestinians released from Israeli custody thus far? Yes, so uh, in the past four days, uh, uh, 150 Palestinian women and child detainees were released by the Israeli occupation authorities as part of a prisoner's exchange deal. Among those released are 33 women, four of them were held under administrative detention, and the rest are children from the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem, including 12 children who were held under administrative detention. And from this, uh, uh, these uh, released, we're talking about the highest uh, sentence is for the released prisoner, Shulukh Dwayat. She's sentenced to 16 years. Uh, also among those released were uh, several injured prisoners, including Israel Jabis, who suffers severe burns all over her body. 
and also Fatima Shaheen, who lost the ability to walk after being shot by the occupation forces. Uh, regarding children, one of the released is the injured child prisoner, Wissam Tamimi, who had been shot in the head few days before his arrest. Uh, and, and just uh, just to was, be clear, when we're talking about children, what are the ages here? Like, it's largely 15, 16-year-olds? Yes, they're from 14 till uh, 18 years old. Okay. You mentioned that uh, that many of them are being held in what's called administrative detention. Uh, can you just explain what that is? Yes, so the administrative detention is uh, uh, where Palestinians are being held in Israeli prisons without a charge, without a trial, uh, indefinitely and based on a secret file. So there are no charges presented against uh, Palestinians. It's an arbitrary detention. Uh, Some of these, I, I was looking through the list earlier today, and I noticed that some of them are listed as charged in civil court and some of them are listed as charged in military court. Can you help us understand the distinction there? Yes. So uh, usually Palestinians from the West Bank are being tried before the military courts and uh, Palestinians from Jerusalem are being tried before the civil courts. So, of course, the military courts, there is no due process. Uh, They have more than 99 percent conviction rate. Now, as you say, a lot of these are are teenagers charged with offenses like stone throwing, but some of them are charged with more serious crimes, placing explosives, there's several attempted murder charges. Are there any of these alleged offenses here that give you pause? Actually, most of them are being charged with uh, throwing stones and Molotov cocktails. Right. So there are no uh, serious crimes uh, we're talking about here. There's a couple that have been listed as attempted murder. There's people that uh, attacks with knives. Um, Are are you? Some of them attempts to. Yes, some of them are are accused of this. Does that concern you uh, seeing people charged with much more serious crimes released as part of this exchange? No, it doesn't, because uh, we actually know that uh, all the uh, all the system of the military courts and the lack of the guarantees of a fair trial uh, and the violations to the due process, uh, all of this, uh, the, the coercing uh, Palestinians to give confessions under torture and ill treatment. So we are not actually uh, giving like attention to these uh, charges or these sentences because they are taken under torture and ill treatment. In your view, are are there any Palestinians that are held in Israeli custody today whose detention is, in fact, legitimate? Actually, uh, we we call everyone, every Palestinian uh, detained in Israeli prisons uh, based on uh, their political activity uh, as a political prisoner. And, of course, we demand uh, their release, especially for the elderly, the sick and ill prisoners, uh, women, children, and uh, all the Palestinian political prisoners. What can you tell us about the conditions of their detention? Yes, so after the 7th, uh, 7th of October, uh, and as events escalated, we have documented many uh, of the extensive violations uh, inside Israeli prisons, including violent raids by Israeli special forces, firing tear gas and beating prisoners, uh, in addition to indefinite blanket bans on family visits, uh, restrictions on lawyers' visits, uh, prohibiting access to medical care, cutting off electricity in several prisons, and transferring a number of prisoners to isolation. 
As a journalist uh, that I used to work in the region, I've covered several of these these prisoner releases before uh, where you see these huge celebrations as the buses cross back into the West Bank. Can you tell us about the conditions surrounding their releases and what limits were placed on some of that uh, over the past few days? Yes. So let's let us distinguish between the West Bank and Jerusalem. Right. Regarding the West Bank, the Israeli forces deliberately assaulted the prisoners and their families during the prisoner release operations. Uh, so they delayed the release of prisoners until late at night. They released the child prisoners wearing clothes that are too big for their size, and some of them were barefoot. Uh, also, the forces used sound bombs, gas bombs, rubber bullets in front of Ofer prison where families were gathered waiting the release of their loved ones. Uh, regarding Jerusalem, the Israeli forces raided the homes of prisoners before their release. Uh, they prevented them from any signs of celebration among, uh, upon reuniting with their sons and daughters. The families were summoned also to Al Maskubiyya interrogation center and were subjected to arbitrary conditions that prohibited gatherings, banned marches and fireworks, prevented chanting slogans, in addition to preventing the dissemination of uh, sweets. Most of those that have been released until now were arrested before October 7th. What sense do you have about how many Palestinians have been arrested since the attacks of October 7th? Yes, so uh, the number of Palestinians arrested after the 7th of October has reached 3,290 detainees, including more than 125 female detainees, 41 journalists, 14 members of the Legislative Council, in addition to uh, 200 children. Uh, That's only from the 7th of October until this day. And if we talk about the the, la- the past four days, more than 168 Palestinians were detained uh, from the beginning of the truth. Uh, it is actually more than the number of released prisoners within this exchange deal. All right, Tali, we're going to have to leave it there, but I really appreciate you making the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. Tala Nasser is a lawyer with the Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, which advocates on behalf of Palestinians in Israeli detention. We reached her in Ramallah. Before her death, Casey McIntyre made a plan to help others. Ms. McIntyre died earlier this month of ovarian cancer. She was 38. In the preceding month, she and her husband decided to set up a fund. All money donated would go to an organization called RIP Medical Debt, which buys up people's medical debt and clears it. News of the fund was posted after Ms. McIntyre died, and the news spread fast. Casey McIntyre's husband, Andrew Rose Gregory, has been getting the word out. We reached Mr. Gregory in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew, first of all, I'm I'm terribly sorry for your loss. Thanks so much, Peter. I really appreciate it. So, and I know these numbers are are growing and they're growing pretty quickly. As of this moment, how much money has been donated to the fund that you and Casey set up? You know, I, it's it's really approaching eight hundred thousand dollars. Um, across seven hundred ninety thousand dollars and. I honestly, earlier this week and this weekend, thought it had kind of slowed down, and today it, it, it's a lot of money has been raised. It's just really extraordinary, and I'm, I'm frankly amazed. 
It really is. Uh, and, and can you translate that for us in terms of how many dollars of debt that money could eliminate? I mean, my understanding is that RIP Medical Debt, and, and, and not just my understanding, I've spoken pretty in-depth now with the CEO and other people at RIP Medical Debt, is that the type of medical debt they're buying up, you know, $800,000 raised is $80 million of medical debt, which wow. is, is just a jaw-dropping amount. How does that even work? I mean, I, I debt is just a commodity, like like so, and medical debt is just like other debts that is eventually being sold by hospitals and private hospitals to, and the founders of RIP Medical Debt just had the idea, like, well, why we just bought the debt, and instead of con- continuing to try to collect on it, what if we just said the debt is gone? And they send out letters. They send out letters to everyone whose debt is forgiven. You know, like this might seem, and like the letter, I saw the sample letter earlier today, because I think they're going to ask me to write a sentence or two in all the letters that are going out for Casey's campaign. And like, there's a section of the letter that's like, this is not a hoax. This is real. Go to this <laughs> website and read the FAQ. Because it's, it's, it seems too good to be true. I mean, what a profound impact that must have on somebody sitting at home and gets that letter. It's life-changing. Yeah, and as we prepare for Casey's memorial and debt jubilee this weekend, it's, um, I don't know, at first you're like, yeah, this debt sucks. Let's get rid of it. Let's burn it. And as as I've sat with it more, it's like the point of this is not the destruction of debt. The the point of this is what possibilities you are opening up. How on earth did you guys even come up with this idea in the first place? You know, um, the the way Casey and I stumbled upon this charity is actually like, I mean, <laughs> Casey's campaign has basically taken off because of a viral tweet a tweet that she had written that I sent after she died. Right. Um, and, we, like, we found out about RIP Medical Death, the organization, through through another viral tweet last March uh, when we saw that a, a church in North Carolina um, had bought a bunch of medical debt and destroyed it. And we, the joy on their face and, and just, like, the celebration at the church really, really moved us, and they'd invited a lot of people from the community. So Case and I looked up RIP medical debt, and we made it uh, a monthly don- donation just for our family. We said this is important to us. Um, we were really lucky that Casey's um, insurance made it so we were not being <laughs> crushed by medical debt and not being crushed by medical costs. Um, but Casey made the, the acquaintance and made friendships with so many cancer patients that were, you know, at times choosing what bill to pay. There are people in the United States that are choosing whether to receive care because of medical debt. So Kate and I started donating to this charity in March, just monthly, and in May, she was very, very, very sick. We really thought that she was going to die, and we started planning her memorial. And um, and we had the idea, like, we don't want to pretend this isn't a memorial. This is very, very sad. But Kate is a very joyous person, and we wanted there to be an element of joy to the ceremony. And I, we had this idea. Um, and then we sat on the idea because Casey got better. And she went into home hospice, and we thought she had two or three weeks, and she had six amazing months in home hospice that we're very grateful for. Um, but we kind of, like, reactivated the plan as she got sicker, and then she passed on uh, November 12th. Right. It, it, I'm really struck by, like, to come up with an idea like this, when when you've got all of that going on. You guys have a young 18-month-old daughter, and here she is thinking about 
what kind of a profound impact she can have on the world. What does that tell us about the kind of person Casey was? Casey is a person that was really motiva- motivated by joy. We have a habit, I guess, still, of buying people Powerball tickets for their birthdays. Mm-hmm. And that meant that I would buy Casey a Powerball ticket for her birthday. And she always said the first thing I would do is um, pay off people's mortgages. In a, in a wow. funny way, she has done that in in this act. But I will also say, I think Casey was... Casey had an extraordinary career. She was, you know, just 38 years old, and she was a publisher at Penguin Random House, um, which is just um, wild still for me to think about. And to 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 have that career, she has to be a very good planner. So Casey did a lot of planning in the last six or seven months around her um, memorial and around her death, and I, I helped her with that, especially she grew sicker. So you sent out that tweet after she died with really no idea what would happen and certainly no sense that, that this would take off in the way that it that it has. How has the organization, RIP Medical Debt, how have they reacted to this? Um, they've been amazing. You know, I've gotten to be in touch with them and they have, um, you know, chatted with me quite a bit that that this is just, uh, a lot of medical debt and that they at first were thinking like, oh, maybe this is a New York City area uh, campaign. And then it's like, oh, maybe this is the Northeast. And now it's like, this is so much medical debt we're going to be buying up and forgiving medical debt all over the country. And we still don't know how much it is going to be. You know, the, the campaign is still going and, and the money is still being raised and we just don't know how much impact this is going to have still. It feels a little like a story. A story that you'll be able to tell 18-month-old Grace as she grows up about the, the profound and incredible impact that her mother had. That is a, a beautiful piece of this in a very, very sad moment we're living in. Is I, I think not the worst part of grief, but a, a really bad part of grief is thinking that the person you lost won't be remembered or that people won't think of them. And I, I think Casey will be remembered. Indeed. Well, again, I'm I'm so profoundly sorry for your loss and grateful for what you guys are doing and, and that you made the time to speak with us about it today. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. Andrew Rose Gregory is the husband of the late Casey McIntyre. We reached him in Brooklyn, New York. Saturday mornings in the 70s could be a mind-altering experience, and not just because of the hallucinogenic levels of sugar in the cereal. It had more to do with producers Sid and Marty Croft, who brought the day-glow psychedelic era into kids' TV. Their shows were live action, heavy on puppets, strange costumes, and even stranger concepts, like a world populated by giant talking hats on Lidsville, an island run by a talking dragon named H.R. Puffinstuff, a family living among dinosaurs in Land of the Lost, and a rock and roll band of flying insect teenagers known as the Bugaloos. The Crofts also presented some of the widest lapels and chunkiest platform shoes ever seen on shows like The Brady Bunch Hour and The Donnie and Marie Show. Marty Croft died on Saturday at the age of 86. 
Among those who worked with the Croft brothers was musician and TV producer Christian Jacobs, co-creator of the kids' show Yo Gabba Gabba. We reached him in St. George, Utah. Christian, take me back to your Saturday mornings as a kid. Can you paint me a picture of what it was like to experience a Sid and Marty Croft show as a child? Wow. Uh, that's a tricky question, but yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, um, <laughs> there's all kinds of weird cartoons going on. Okay? It was anything to get your your attention, but something that stood out to us was the Sid and Marty Croft shows because they were usually live action, and they were kind of like a live action cartoons. They were like cartoons that had come to life. Once we started watching the Sid and Marty Croft shows, there was we would rarely change the channel you never knew what you were going to see next. It was always wild. You know, Dr. Shrinker. And, right. <laughs> and just, there's so many weird shows, and it was so great. So great. Electra Woman and Diana Girl, you know. I, I mean, I, I'm a kid of the 70s, too, so I've, I've, I have vivid memories of this. But I never got to meet Marty Croft. You did. What? Have, tell me about that first time. It was a, for the, a pitch for a TV show, right? Yeah, so we had a deal. I, I'm in a band called the Aquabats, and, you know, we are – we dress up like superheroes and play cartoon rock, you know, something that you would probably see in a Sid Marty Croft show. <laughs> and um, we were, we had a deal at Disney at Buena Vista TV and we took pitches from all kinds of different people. And someone said, would you want to take a pitch from Sid and Marty Croft? And I would jump at it. Yes. Please. <laughs> I bet. And, you know, Sid and Marty came in and Marty was the business guy. He was the, you know, he wasn't chomping a cigar, but it was kind of that vibe, you know, like, hey, I'm Marty. Yeah, this yeah. Is, you know, you know us, Land of the Lost, you know, we're your favorite creators. You know, he was selling right from the minute he walked in. And Sid was kind of this gentle, you know, really creative guy. And they, they had a treatment that they'd written up, you know, pitching us about what an Aquabat show could look like with Sid and Marty Croft. And it was oh, just everything wow. you would think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, they live in a haunted house of the outskirts of town, and everything in the in the house is alive, and the, and the lampshades talk, and the, you know, grandfather clock, and the, and the aquabats live in the attic, and they fly down because they're bats, and it, it was just just ridiculous fun. It was, I, I was just really excited to talk to them, and you know, they gave me their business cards, and I think I reached out to them a couple times over the next couple years just to see what they were doing, and Marty was always, you know, willing to. Talk about a deal, you know. Oh wow, <laughs> which was fun. He would always have stories about, you know, the time I went to NBC and sat him down and I sold puffin stuff for, you oh, know, went wow. out to dinner with Frank Sinatra and Jane Mansfield, and you know, the time we had Joe Namath on the, the Donnie and Marie show, and he just he had endless stories of like old Hollywood, and he was always just an open book. For the most part, <laughs> sometimes he wanted to just get the get the the show on the road. Like, you know, just you do your job, get it done. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, they so, must. Yeah, and I was able to work. Yeah, I was able to work with them later on. So that's right. What was that like? Up, we didn't end up working together on the Aquabats, but you know, years later, after I had produced Yo Gabba Gabba, someone had recommended me to him to come in as a director and help on a show that he did was doing for Nickelodeon um, called Mutton Stuff, which was a Caesar Milan, the dog right. whisperers, uh, do, you know, dog and kids, everything they tell you not to do. Don't work with kids and animals and, and puppets. And there was all of those things in one show. And, and you know, Marty brought me and my partner Jason in and said, I need you guys to come in and help me get this show under budget. And I, I trust you guys. And 
you know, he had that, he'd point his finger at you and goes, I know you can do it. And, and, uh, it just felt amazing. And then we just hit it off from there, became really good friends, uh, with Marty and his family and Sid and their daughters. And just, it was, it was amazing. It was really amazing to feel like part of the family. They must have been charming or like just presented really well in a room. Like I'm trying to imagine even then, even in the 70s, to be going into these corporate offices to meet with the suits and pitching a show about talking hats. Like what what do you think their secret was to convincing mainstream to go for these these pretty wild ideas? Well, they had, they had the they had the perfect dynamic. You know, it was a perfect dynamic, the dynamic duo. And he really knew how to talk to the executives and he had so much confidence you know, and he could convince you that, you know, they could pull anything off. And he was just one of those guys that, you know, would tell you that he could play a concert at Radio City Music Hall, but not know how to play the piano and then figure out how to do it before the concert. You know, he was, that was kind wow. of Marty's skills. He, he kind of gauge things that they were going well by, like, if everyone was happy and the energy was good. And he, you know, he, okay, I can tell it's going well, you know, like everyone's right, right. having a good time. And, and I, I really love that and respect that and, you know, rolled that into my productions too. Just as everyone's having a great time, then good things are happening. So it seemed like they were having a good time. <laughs> well, they, they were having a good time. And I, I have to ask, they, they always denied it, but you know, a lot of people saw some pretty clear references to drug culture in the show. I mean, HR puffin stuff, it sounds an awful lot like puffin stuff, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, sure. Do you buy the, the, they said that none of it was intentional. Do you buy that? I do. I do. And I, only because I work with them closely. And I, you know, of course, there had to have been dabbling, of course. But but to Marty's point, and he always stood by this, and I agree, you know, if he was, if they were really on drugs, they wouldn't have been able to get anything done. You know, I mean, think about it, <laughs> especially a lot of the psychedelics at the time. You know, like w- watching paint dry is exciting when you're like that baked. You right. know what I mean? And like <laughs> they were able to like really do some like Herculean lifting of amazing, weird, wonderful ideas and get a ton of stuff done. It was clean and it came from a pure place. They're really. They're really big kids at heart, and and I love that because I am too. And Sid and Marty both they both have a, this wonder and excitement about about entertainment and and making people smile and laugh. And and I love that. I love that about them. And and actually makes me feel a little emotional thinking about that they dedicated their lives to you know making people smile and laugh and bringing I bet. I bet. fun things to to the world. You know, it's true. You know. It really is. And, you know, thank you for sharing all of this with us. It's just so great to hear all these stories and memories. Thank you. And, you know, rest in peace, Marty. And we love you, Sid. And those shows will live on forever. Christian Jacobs is the co-creator of TV's Yo Gabba Gabba and the founder of the band The Aquabats. We reached him in St. George, Utah. It started with five women. Now the list of plaintiffs in a case against the state of Texas has grown to 22. The plaintiffs argue that the medical exceptions in the state's abortion laws are too narrow. They say they suffered serious complications during their pregnancies, but they were denied access to abortions that could have helped them. 
Today, the Texas Supreme Court heard arguments in the case. It will now decide whether to apply a temporary injunction that would allow doctors to perform abortions in cases of serious complications at their own discretion. Several of the plaintiffs were in the courtroom today for the hearing. Dr. Austin Denard was one of them. We reached her in Austin, Texas. Austin, this is not the first time arguments in this case have played out in a Texas courtroom. What was it like to be back in court today arguing this again? Honestly, it was a mix of emotions. Um, Anytime we all get together, the trauma that we and that I have felt um, due to these restrictive laws just comes bubbling back and it gets really, um, it gets really emotional. Um, The last time I was in court, I was 34 weeks pregnant and uh, today I showed up to court with my, my 12 week old in my arms. So even though I wasn't sitting on the stand, I was, I was nervous. I was emotional and um, also just feeling so, so grateful that um, despite everything that we've gone through, I was getting to hold my son um, and watch our fantastic lawyer represent us towards the state. So it, it was a lot of different feelings. I bet. Now, I, I read a piece this afternoon that, that kind of left the impression that the justices were certainly open to the arguments being made and and had uh, we're, we're going to have to try to find a way to unwind all of these these various different arguments. Is that kind of where you land at the end of today? That's certainly my hope. I I felt like the questions that were directed towards towards Molly were were thoughtful and um, and educated at least, which is a great starting point. And just so people understand sort of what we're talking about here, during your own pregnancy, previous to the the one that you have with your baby now, but during your own pregnancy, you learned that the fetus had a condition called an encephaly. What did that mean for you and what did that mean for the pregnancy? That's correct. Um, Unfortunately, at an early ultrasound, an encephaly was diagnosed, which is in and of itself a lethal anomaly, meaning there was no chance my um, my pregnancy would end in a in a sibling for my two other children, um, and I knew that quite quickly after looking at my own ultrasound and discussing the results with my maternal fetal medicine specialist. Um, and unfortunately, because of these incredibly restrictive laws, um, I was not going to be offered an abortion in our state, and had to flee my own state in order to receive the standard medical care for for my diagnosis. And, uh, like, I mean, at the heart of that is, you know, you were able to leave the state, but not everyone is able to. What does it mean to you when you think of the people who've been forced to carry to term under similar circumstances? Well, I always say that I have come from an incredible amount of privilege, and my story is one of, of privilege, um, being able to travel, having the family support, understanding my diagnosis um, to begin with. Um, so many individuals don't have that privilege. And it's led to patients like Samantha Castellano not being able to receive care. And she's just devastated from what she's had to go through, as have other patients. Um, I think it's important for every individual who's pregnant to be able to have an honest conversation with their physician and make the best choice for themselves. And for some that might be to continue to carry the pregnancy and for others 
it might mean ending the pregnancy, but that decision should absolutely be made between a patient and their physician without fear of any sort of litigation. You're a doctor, an OBGYN, and you joined this lawsuit after hearing that one of your patients was one of the plaintiffs. How often are you hearing stories like that in your work? It's not incredibly often, but it's often enough to where we need to have good support for patients and and physicians trying to take great care of them. Uh, Lauren is is a dear friend of mine and an incredible patient and someone I've taken care of for a long time. And what we had to go through together should never, ever have to occur. She's such an inspiration for me and one of the reasons why I joined this lawsuit. And to be quite honest, it wasn't until I was able to deliver Henry and put him on her chest that I felt that we had finally gotten him here safely and that she was going to be okay. Um, so our two sons, our two sons are here and healthy and in our arms because of the abortion care that we were able to receive. We just shouldn't have had to travel so far to receive it. Uh, so the court heard this case today. It will now go back and sort of consider the arguments. What, where does everything go from here? Well, that's probably a better question for our lawyers. Um, Fair. <laughs> um, we're all waiting with bated breath, but I can guarantee you that whatever the decision is, we are not going to stop fighting for the reproductive rights of the women in Texas. You, as we started, you, you've been down this road before. You've waited for that email to come in to tell you one way or the other. Can you compare where you're at in terms of hope on this and this file now versus the the original lower court case when, when you made these same arguments then? Well, I think remaining hopeful is imperative in situations like this. Um, hearing the lower court receive our argument and grant us temporary injunction was just so emotional and, and, and was such a great feeling, although fleeting. And I'm hopeful that with time we can make steps towards more reproductive rights for, for the women in this state. Well, we're really grateful you're able to make time for us at the end of a busy day. So thank you for this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Dr. Austin Denard is an OBGYN in Texas and a plaintiff in a case against the state's abortion laws. We reached her in Austin, Texas. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Today, friends and family and people across America said a final goodbye to Rosalind Carter. 
Among the hundreds who attended the service in Atlanta, Georgia, was her husband of 77 years, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, who is 99 years old. Former President Bill Clinton and current President Joe Biden were also there, along with all four living first ladies. During his eulogy, Ms. Carter's grandson, Jason, talked about his grandmother's unshakable strength. And despite the sorrowful occasion, he also managed to make the congregation laugh. One of the stories we've been talking about in my family these last few days is we were on a family trip and we were on a flight on Delta from here to somewhere and we were all sitting in the back of the airplane together and it took off and we looked over and my grandmother took out this Tupperware of pimento cheese <laughs> and this loaf of bread and she just started making sandwiches and, and she gave it to all of us grandkids and everyone else and then she just started giving them to other people on the plane. And people were sitting there like, Rosalind Carter just made me this sandwich, you know? And they, they couldn't believe it, but she loved people. And she was a cool grandma. She was cool, like, she did Tai Chi with this sword. And if you want to see a five-year-old boy be excited, they would come back, Dad, do you know Mom Carter has a sword, you know? She was a rock for our family. And that's true, but in many ways, she was more, as Chip said, an adventurer, a voyager, a mountain climber. She learned to ski in her 60s and then skied for 25 more years. As Chip said, she fished trout streams from Georgia to Wyoming and from Venezuela to Siberia, visited 120 countries, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Fuji and summited peaks in Bolivia and other places. And I know that she went to the Everest base camp in Nepal. And I can guarantee you that she was looking up at that thing and thinking, if they would just let me. It was Rosalind Carter's grandson, Jason Carter, giving a eulogy at his grandmother's funeral today. Elgin marbles are among the most stunning examples of ancient Greek statuary on earth. And one interesting thing about them is that they're not really the Elgin marbles at all. Lord Elgin didn't make them. He was just some earl who took them from the Acropolis in Greece to Britain in the 19th century and never took them back. Greece would like them back, though. It has been asking for decades now. And the UK has been politely declining for decades. So the situation has been tense, and today tensions rose. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak cancelled a meeting with Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis after he talked about the marbles in an interview with the BBC. This is not, an, in my mind, an ownership question. This is an, a reunification argument. Where can you best appreciate what is essentially one monument? I mean, it's as if, if, if I told you that you would cut the Mona Lisa in half and you would have half of it at the Louvre and half of it at the British Museum. Do you think your viewers would appreciate the, the, the beauty of the painting in such a way? Well, this is exactly what happened with the Parthenon. Evangelos Kyriakidis is the director of the Heritage Management Organization. We reached him in Athens. Evangelos, what do you think of the Greek prime minister's comparison there? Well, it's a, it's a very good example. It's, of course, only one of the many arguments that the Greek side has used in favor of uh, return and reunification. I know, I know you're, not, you're, you're not an expert in international relations, but I, I've been struggling with this all day. Why do you think 
that BBC interview and those comments about the Mona Lisa, why did that trigger this breakdown in communications? First of all, I don't really think there is a, a real breakdown in communications. But uh, as you said, <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't really have any privileged <laughs> information here. Um, but what I do know is that this is unprecedented. All prime ministers, all ministers of culture since the 1980s uh, have actually made the point. Obviously, everybody knows um, that this is not a sufficient issue to stop uh, a meeting between two prime ministers. So I think there is more into this. And my read, the British prime minister is not talking to a Greek audience, is not talking even to the British audience, is talking to a segment of his own voters um, who are the more conservative and would be uh, against uh, the repatriation of the Parthenon marbles, because we know that the majority of the British public is in favor of repatriation. And in fact, Greece is actually a particularly nice country towards Britain and to all these other uh, uh, kind of countries with uh, global museums, so-called, um, because it's not asking for everything back. And right. Greece is only asking for its national symbol back. And, and um, I'd like you to just flesh that out because, I, like, I know these these headlines fly by and people kind of know what this is. But as you say, the the Parthenon marbles are not just anything. These are uh, a, an iconic part of of Greece's history. Can you just, for people who aren't as familiar with these works, uh, explain why they're so significant to Greece? They are the iconic monument of the rebirth of Athens after the Persian Wars which is the time, the heyday of democracy. And so it embodies um, the pride of Athens kind of rising from its ashes through democracy at the height of philosophy and so on and so forth. And so today it is actually seen by the majority of modern Greeks as probably the most potent national symbol. Um, it is arguable whether more people know how the Greek flag looks like or how the Parthenon looks like. I do not know to answer, to right. how to answer no, that fair. question. It would be a bit like, uh, not Mona Lisa, it would be like the crown jewels were hosted right. in the Greek National Museum. There, there is this kind of outdated trope of why, uh, you know, the, these, these kinds of artifacts can't be given back to the various countries of origin. Uh, and the first mm -hmm. one that people always cite is that the country of origin just simply isn't capable of housing these kinds of works, uh, which is belied by the fact that there is an Acropolis museum that's one of the nicest museums in the world in Athens that could very well house these, isn't that's it? That's right. You know, these arguments are actually quite interesting because by reading the Greek arguments and the British arguments on this topic, uh, you can inform yourself very well on how the repatriation argument is going, because this is exactly what European museums, American museums have been telling African countries about repatriation. We cannot give you your stuff back because you can't look after it. Uh, now we've moved beyond that, not only because of the building of the Acropolis Museum. It's a marvelous museum that's got visual contact with the monument itself, visited possibly even by more people than those that visit the British Museum. So I don't think that um, any of this is, is really an, an argument anymore. And 
beyond its many problems, I would say, well, if countries are not able to host their own heritage, previous colonial powers or imperial countries have the responsibility to help them manage their own heritage in a more able way and to be able to give them the know-how, give them the technology and give them the means to do so because these countries have been deprived of their own heritage for centuries. And well, I think people can understand that uh, snowball effect, that if you give something away, then you'll have mm-hmm. to give everything away. I, you, I come back to the point mm-hmm. you just made, that Greece is not asking for everything back. They're simply asking for exactly. these back. Should that not be enough to blunt those arguments? I, I think the return of the Parthenon marbles is a unique opportunity for actually the the, the, the British Museum. Because um, Greece is the only country that is only asking for its national symbol. And, you know, the snowball effect has already happened, not is already happening, has already happened, not from British Museum collections, but from a lot of the global museum collections that have been repatriated, have been going back to the countries of origin. We've heard in the past two years about Benin bronzes and about repatriation of artifacts to Ethiopia and other places. So it is happening. And the British Museum runs the risk of finding itself in a complete avalanche where it might have to question its own existence already. Making that very bold move, this grand gesture of public diplomacy, of uh, opportunity and and kind of win-win for everyone and returning, unifying the monument, returning the marbles, it can actually really divert public opinion and survive it for another decade or two before that snowball effect becomes completely untenable for the museum. Well, it's certainly not the final chapter of this saga, and we sure appreciate you helping us make sense of it all. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) it it is a saga indeed. Thank you. Evangelos Kyriakidis is the director of the Heritage Management Organization. He's in Athens. Six weeks ago, Frank the Tank was found in a spinach field in Richmond, British Columbia. That sounds bad. So you'll be relieved or confused to hear that Frank is a juvenile male sulcata tortoise. And when he was found last month, he weighed around 35 pounds. He was likely abandoned. And he was not in good shape. But now the Maple Ridge SPCA has found a permanent home for the creature, which could live up to 150 years. That new owner wants to stay anonymous, but this morning the CBC spoke with Mark Vosper, the British Columbia SPCA's Animal Protection Services Regional Manager. He's been fostering Frank since last month. After he got over his respiratory infection, he uh, and he started eating as well, his bodily functions kicked in. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that was interesting as well. And um, he he would move towards you when he go uh, anywhere near his pen. He would come towards oh you looking gosh. for food or a scratch. But um, yeah, his shells uh, kind of a living a living body there. And when you scratch him or or just pet him, he 
uh, he he loves that. He moves about. He does this little movement where he's enjoying it. You can give him a scratch and he'll wiggle his back end. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's a he's a real character actually. Um, and so, what was it like for you living with a, a giant tortoise for six weeks? <laughs> it was it was interesting. You, you get into a routine. So when you when you've got a, an animal to care for, you get into the routine. You get up first thing. You make sure they're clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you make sure they get the fresh food. Um, for Frank, it was uh, hay this time of year. They eat ninety uh, percent uh, hay, grass, uh, leafy greens, and uh, yeah, just to make sure that he was okay. So kind of once you've cleaned him up, check his eyes, check his walking um so yeah you get into a routine and he's a big guy so in the morning he's kind of feeding and then he's under the lamp and then he's uh doing his business that i have to clear up but uh, um then in the afternoon like twice a week i would give him a little uh, soak like two or three inches of water just warm water in the bath and uh once he's been in the bath he comes out tail him off uh, and he was walking around the house so he had uh, he had access he was in all the rooms um yeah it was it was quite a novelty for six weeks did he attempt to navigate stairs no no we we actually live in a bungalow oh thank so goodness that was quite handy yeah <laughs> now um he has made international headlines and since his story came out you have had hundreds of applicants um how did you choose who would be his forever family well, this, this is all down to the uh, Maple Ridge uh, Animal Centre and the manager there, Kaylee Demers. So I don't have any anything to do with that. That's an operational okay. um, procedure there. But I, I know that they did say to me that so many applications. And they spent a lot of time, actually, making phone calls and checking the references for right. the people that put put uh, the names forward for Frank and luckily they found one who came along yesterday and it was it was a very good match so we're very pleased with that that was Mark Vosper from the British Columbia SPCA speaking with the CBC Stephen Quinn host of the early edition in Vancouver It's been 13 years since Shannon Gilbert disappeared, and for her family, those years have been tumultuous. Her death in 2010 triggered a search that eventually led to the discovery of the bodies of four other women, now known as the Gilgo Four. They were believed to be victims of a serial killer. And this summer, a Long Island man was charged in three of their murders and named as the prime suspect in the fourth. But there's disagreement about Ms. Gilbert's death. Police have said it was accidental drowning. Her family maintains it was murder. And her mother fought hard for that theory until she herself was murdered in 2016. Now, Shannon's surviving family members are reeling from the news that parts of their terrible story will not be told by them or their advocates, but by a documentary crew from NBC, which is reportedly paying accused killer Rex Heuerman's family to participate in a docu-series covering his upcoming trial. Frances Nicotra is part of the legal team representing Shannon Gilbert's family. We reached her in Miller Place, New York. 
Francis, this family has been through so much. What was it like for them to hear the news that this docu-series was happening? Uh, well, I um, am putting myself at this time in their shoes, and I think it is a travesty um, to know that the uh, family of uh, an accused uh, murderer is going to benefit financially into a million dollars. It really does open the wounds, um, and it adds insult, complete insult to injury for the families of the um, victims. Can I just ask, where are you getting the, the, the information about how much money the family would be making? Do we actually know much about the terms of the deal? Where I'm getting it is purely from what I'm reading. Right. That's a good question, is I have not reviewed the contracts. I have not seen the contracts. I know that there has been uh, the reporting of which, and uh, uh, that says that uh, that the um, wife is going to get a, a million dollars, that the attorneys will be getting uh, several hundred thousand dollars apiece, and the adult kids of the wife uh, are going to be receiving six figures as well. That's what I've read alongside everybody else. And it would be against the law for him to benefit in any way from this deal, but not for her so long as she doesn't transfer that money on, if if in fact he was convicted, of course. Correct. If he he was convicted, it would be illegal for him. Uh, It is not illegal for a family member, according to my understanding of the Son of Sam was. Uh, A lawyer representing two of Rex Herman's children told the New York Times that the family's house was left basically uninhabitable after the police investigation, that his clients had to sleep in their car, that they maintained they knew nothing about any of his alleged crimes. Do you have any sympathy for them? If, if, If they knew nothing... Um, you know, that that is a sad thing, to be a victim of circumstance, to be at the mercy of the uh, of, of your parents and step-parents uh, having lived in, in a home of dysfunction. My understanding that's also been reported is that their home was in horrific disrepair prior to right. Mr. Sherman's uh, arrest horrible disrepair, and it was um, packed uh, as in a hoarding situation. This isn't the first time we've come up on this kind of thing happening. Last year, the mother of one of the convicted uh, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's victims um, condemned Netflix for releasing a true crime series about her son's murder. What do you think should be done to prevent this kind of thing? You know, I've thought about this, actually, and in my mind, I'm thinking anytime um, a media company, broadcaster, publishing house um, wants a story like this and is willing to pay uh, the people that have lived close, closest to the, um, to the offender, to the, you know, the person who's committed these heinous crimes, um, if if they're going if there's going to be a payout to that family, there should be an equal payout, hmm. equal to each and every single 
victim. So if um, the wife is going to receive a million dollars, if that is the case, then each and every single victim should receive the exact same compensation, the family of each victim. People love these true crime stories. They devour them as TV shows, as films, as podcasts, as books and articles. And I don't think when you consume them, many people think about the implications that that you're raising here. What is your message to people listening who may be fans of this kind of content? Hmm. Well, it's a very complicated uh, situation. Um, There certainly is a, a desire to, you know, consume this information, but there is a whole story uh, in the background about those who have fallen victim, those very vulnerable people who have fallen victim to um, the heinous crimes. You know, they're human beings uh, with lives, with family that meant something, that were valued. They were loved by people, and they were worthy of love. And their stories are far more interesting and far more compelling. And it's important to remember that. I've made it through this whole interview without actually asking about Shannon. What what have you learned about her from her family? Shannon, from what I've learned about her, was a wonderful, beautiful human being. She had, first off, um, she had the voice of an angel. She could sing. And she had dreams of of being a performer and, and making it big in New York City, uh, like many actors and and um, and singers and performers have that very same dream. Uh, she had dreams. She had aspirations. She was very smart. I know that she graduated high school early, but she was very smart on on top of that, and she was just a very very bright girl and very beautiful and she was very uh, compassionate and she was very giving very generous with her family she loved her family she loved her sisters very much and she was very beloved well thank you for telling us about her and about the implications of this docuseries I think it's an important story and we're really glad to get you on thank you you too bye bye Frances Nakotra is one of the lawyers for the family of Shannon Gilbert, whose disappearance in 2010 led to the discovery of four women's bodies and ultimately a murder trial that will be the focus of an NBC docuseries profiling the accused killer's family. We reached Ms. Nakotra in Miller Place, New York. We contacted NBC for a comment on this story, but we didn't hear back before airtime. The trip home from Las Vegas is often an uncomfortable one, which can usually be traced to a disturbing lightness in the wallet or an insistent pounding in the temples. But earlier this month, a less familiar tale of woe landed a caravan of cars deep in the Mojave Desert after Google Maps suggested drivers take an alternative route to avoid a sandstorm. The detour ended up being something other than a time saver. 
Shelby Easler was in the passenger seat as her brother drove. We reached her in Los Angeles. Shelby, what did you think when you got that first notification from Google Maps suggesting there's an alternate route here? You can maybe take that. Honestly, it sounded pretty nice. It said it would save us 50 minutes. So uh, after, you know, a long weekend in Vegas, that 50 minutes of extra sleep sounded pretty good. Not bad. What do you see as you first get off the main road? A whole lot of nothing. Desert and cacti. I don't know if it was like an old, like, fire access road or what it was at one point. Um, But basically, it was just an off-roading path um, that had been washed out. So it was very uneven. Um, The path was dug pretty deep into the ground. So we couldn't really turn around because you kind of just got stuck in a line and uh, cars in front of us, cars behind us, just desert, the whole lot of nothing going on for a long time. Uh, we're lucky that it was in the middle of the day and not like during the heat of the summer. And just, <laughs> just it was pretty to me, gnarly out there. Were there a lot of cars though? Like you weren't alone. Oh yeah, no, there was like probably around 200 cars that were with us as well. To make it clear, you, you weren't in like a, an off-roading Jeep or anything either. No, no, we were in an Audi SUV. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you're sitting in the car, the road's getting sort of worse and worse, the, the, it's, everything's slowed down. What's going through your mind? What's it like to be in that car? I mean, I wanted to take a nap. I wasn't the one driving, <laughs> so I was like, where are you guys, where are you taking us right now? <laughs> like, I have been, literally slept an hour, so <laughs> what, what is happening? Uh, it was super, super um, bumpy, so... We were just, like, jumping up and down in our seats. Uh, we thought it would end up somewhere, but, uh, you know, that wasn't, wasn't the case. It ended up getting just lost in the desert. It's not even a road. It's barely a path. Uh, how long do you stay yeah. on that before you say, okay, this is crazy. we got to do something here. Immediately, we were like, <laughs> we need to turn around. But it wasn't really an option to turn around just because it was so, like, dug into the ground and we were pinned car to car. But the navigation said that we go on for like two or three miles and then make a left. Those two miles took us probably around two and a half hours just to go straight. And eventually we got to that left turn and we were like, this this isn't leading anywhere. And a car had turned around and told us that they had gone further up the mountain. And they were like, hey, uh, this road washes out. Like, you got to go back. And we turned around and looked at the like hundreds of cars behind us. And we're like. I don't know how we're going to do that because everyone's coming in our direction. And this is like a one-way little path. But eventually we made like a, a seven-point turn like into a bush <laughs> and then into a bush and then a cactus and then a rock. And the car was not happy. I bet. <laughs> not a breakdown. But we were able to turn around. But then we're face-to-face with all the other cars that were coming towards us. Google's issued a statement saying they apologize. They'll make sure no one gets sent down that particular road again. How, how does that make you feel? I am glad that they uh, did say something. They said they're like not having this on their um, navigation systems anymore, which I'm very glad for so that all the other cars with us and our damage doesn't happen again. Okay, so take us back to the drive. You, you've turned around. You're now going against the traffic on this tiny little, let's call it a path for what it's worth. And it took you, what, two hours to get two miles? How long did it take you to get back down that path? Yeah, so that took around three hours to get back because, oh. you know, now we're pinned car to car. Uh, everyone was getting out. Like, none of the cars could really turn around. We had to wait for every individual vehicle to make the seven, eight-point turn. Um, these are, like, Honda Civics and stuff that, right. like, they can't make it either. But at least we were in an SUV. 
Um, our car's also like pretty battered and beaten up at this point, so pretty crazy. So this detour that was supposed to save you time ended up costing you five hours? Yeah, so it took us, it should have taken us around four and a half hours on like a normal drive home. And it took us, it took me and my um, significant other, we got home first of the car. It took us 14 hours to get back. No. It took my brother who was driving and then his fiance. It took them two days to get back. Shelby. Because they had to wait in Vegas with their car. So it was gnarly. <laughs> 14 hours yeah. in, you finally get home, you get your two feet back down, you have a bathroom in sight and fresh water coming. How does that feel? Oh, so good. Laying in my bed after that whole ordeal was, it was like a godsend. <laughs> well, listen, this is a, a, a remarkable tale of getting lost in the desert. And it, it's just, it's really great to hear, but I'm really mostly just glad you made it home safe. Yeah, I'm glad too. Thanks thanks so much for hearing about uh, our journey. All right, take good care and, and, and good luck out there. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I'll bring a map next time so I won't get lost. Fair enough. All right, take good care. <laughs> yeah, have a good one. Bye. Shelby Easler is safe and sound in Los Angeles, where we reached her. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.